Romans chapter 13. As we dive into the chapter and preach the sermon, I imagine everybody in the community, based on what they read in the paper, thinks I preach every Sunday. Let's, uh, it's a sermon on church and state that Paul lays out a text here in Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Romans 13, starting in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For 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 he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would would honor your word as it's preached this morning, that you would help us to see the truth of your word, that we would understand it. Father, that we would love it, that we'd be repentant, that we would be rejoicing over it, Father, would teach us more about you and what you have for us as your children, as your church that does exist in this world. Father, as we are in the world but not of the world, help us to be those who live godly in Christ Jesus in this state that you have appointed for us to live in. You say that you appoint the places and the seasons, times in which men live and you have appointed for us to live in the United States of America in this era for your own good purposes. We pray, Father, that as we do so, we would live in a godly manner. We would live in response to the gospel of the free grace and mercy of God in a manner that that demonstrates to the world that we are yours, that you would be pleased by it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jay, can you grab me some water? Is that cool? Well, there there are upcoming elections, right, in uh, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, don't worry. Just right out of the gate, let me just say that. I'm not going to tell you what party to vote for, don't worry. But there are elections coming up in a few weeks, and some of you may have already started voting by mail. And if you pay any attention to the news, or you pay any attention to what's going on in the country um, via various media sources, you, you will recognize that it seems to be that people are exceedingly upset about what's going on in America. They've been upset for some time, but um, they are upset once again. Um, and it continues to snowball. And it snowballs for various reasons. You hear the things that people are upset about um, and the, the kinds of things that are going on in a, the country. For example, our nearly $13 trillion debt. That concerns people because I think they calculated the net worth of the whole United States of America. The entire net worth is like $14 trillion. And we have a $13 trillion debt. That concerns us. People are concerned about that. You hear 
anger over the fact that um, while everything in the private industry sector continues to shrink, the government continues to grow, now eating up, according to the recent statistic I read, over 40% of the national economy. Now, whether you think that's enough government or too, too much government is not what I'm talking about this morning. What I'm talking about is the fact that people are upset about it. A Brit. People are upset about the fact that government has taken that on. You hear about people arguing over um, our progressive tax system. Should we have a tax system that, that the more wealthy you are, the higher percentage, sort of causing a bit of a class warfare between people? And people get into disputes about that. People arguing over whether or not we ought to be in Afghanistan or Iraq or various countries at war. And we are just a nation that has got this sense, and I don't know if you feel it, this sense of this sort of boiling that's happening among the people of anger about various issues. And people coming from very different angles. We, we have a culture where you have cultural conservatives who are upset because... Um, you're, you're actually more suspect if you spank children than if you abort them. Or a country where it's actually more acceptable for one man to marry another man than it is for a teacher to pray with her kids in the classroom. And you have people going, this is a problem. And you have um, anger that's boiling under the surface. And what, what everybody agrees about Interestingly enough, conservative or liberal, whatever side of the political spectrum they come from, what everybody seems to agree about is that government seems to be somewhat of a problem, or at least the particular variety of government we have right now, and if we just had this variety of government, then that might be the solution, and that's what everybody seems to agree about. In fact, um, this was captured really in the 80s when we were coming out of the problems in the 70s, we had a candidate who came on the scene who for all he was for the Republicans, he was essentially a Republican messiah, much like Obama has been a Democrat messiah, and his name is Ronald Reagan. And I think some Republicans are still waiting for the second coming of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> but he was this sort of political messiah. And he made this joke that most of us have heard or are familiar with about government. He made this comment, what are the scariest words in the English language? The answer, we're from the government and we're here to help you, right? You guys have heard that? And it captured a sentiment among the people that they don't trust the government. And that's fu funny as far as it goes, but it doesn't recognize something that's important. Regardless of where you come from on the political spectrum, it doesn't recognize the fact that government is given to us by God as a common grace to all men. Hear that? And I mean that in gender-inclusive sense. Government is given to us by God, it's instituted by God, it's created by God for our own good. Government started in the Garden of Eden. What happens in the Garden? Adam and Eve are put in the Garden and God tells them that you are to, what? Be fruitful and multiply. You are to have dominion over all the creation, aren't you? There's a governing authority God gave to Adam over the creation. It's a mediatorial authority. I'm God... As my governor, you, Adam, you are to do these things and not do these things. But ultimately, I'm making you a governor over the creation. And it starts there. It was corrupted after the fall. Man began to do things he was not supposed to. 
he began to attempt to replace God as the ultimate authority and begin to assert himself as the ultimate authority. We see that happening very quickly with the Tower of Babel, don't we? I mean, man had become so corrupt in his governance, there were two different cities that were being set up prior to the, t- prior to the flood even, where it was essentially a city of man, where man is exalted, and a city of God in which God was exalted. And there was this battle that happened even before the, before the flood, and man had become so corrupt and wicked, God floods the earth. And then when Noah and his family come out, it's not too long after that, that again, man is populating the earth and is building the Tower of Babel, saying, we're going to replace God. And they begin to rail against God again. These are the problems caused by sin. These are not problems with government as an institution, as a created order. They are the problems with government as a result of the fall. The government is actually good. The whole Bible is about government, isn't it? The whole Bible is about politics. You cannot say, I hate politics and be a Christian in this sense. In this sense, the whole Bible is about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who is building his kingdom, isn't it? So it is a political story about a God who is the sovereign, the king, who will rule and reign. About a God who made man a mediatorial king, said you will govern on my behalf. A man who fell into corruption and sin, fell into corruption and sin, And now, unfortunately, rather than government continuing to promote the common good, government spends most of its time restraining evil and sadly often becoming itself evil and despotic and then has to be restrained itself. That's a story that goes through the Bible. That is a story that God wrote. Jesus then comes and says, I'm going to be the new king. I'm the new king. And he gives his life He raises from the dead, and he tells us, I'm going to return. And when I return, I will govern the earth directly, immediately. There will no no longer be a, a mediator in the sense of there won't be some kind of mediatorial government. I will directly be its king, governing it all my own. So people always ask me all the time, you know, Chad, I know that you're a political conservative, and this is incidentally beside the point. I'm not telling you which part of the political spectrum to be on. But I know you're a political conservative, and they say, as a result of that, Um, You want a theocracy, don't you? Don't you? You Christian conservatives, you guys want a theocracy. They post it on my Facebook all the time. You want a theocracy. You want a rule by God, don't you? I say, you caught me. Secret's out. I do. I want Jesus to rule forever. I pray for a theocracy every day. I don't believe we can elect a man, however, who will lead that. So if you think... I'm sitting around hoping that one day we're going to elect some kind of candidate who's going to lead us into a theocratic kingdom. You're absolutely wrong. The only theocratic kingdom I'm praying for is the return of Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. It's the only one I'm praying for. But God has created government. And Paul has to address the idea of what is our responsibility as citizens with regard to the state that we live in. So why does Paul talk about church and state here? I mean, Paul has launched out of an 11-chapter diatribe on what the gospel is, and then he says, now in light of this gospel, in light of the grace of God, in light of the mercy of God, I want to tell you how to live. 
want to tell you what the logical, rational, reasonable response is to all this. Let me tell you what the first thing is. The first thing is, or the comprehensive thing is, offer your whole life to God. Offer it all. That is the reasonable response to the grace of God, is to offer your entire life, to renew your mind. Body and mind, offer it all. That's the reasonable response. That's what he says right off the gun. That is the reasonable response. He goes on and lays that out. The first thing you need to know about that is you need to know that you need to stop thinking so highly of yourself. You need other Christian people in your life. You need them. God's gifted you, and he's gifted them, and he's gifted all of you for one another to help each other. So that's the first thing out of the gate he addresses. Then he says, and I want you to love each other rightly, and here's what that looks like. Then he goes on and says, and I want you to love your enemies, those outside the church, and here's what that looks like. And then he goes all of a sudden in Romans 13 and says, now I want you to tell you something else. Be in subjection to the state that you live in. Look what he says, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Why does he go from talking about your Christian life, now that you understand the gospel and love Jesus, now that you understand the grace of God, you ought to offer your whole life to God, so get involved in your church Love one another, care for one another, love your enemies, and by the way, obey your government. That's an interesting transition, isn't it? He comes from what we would consider the sort of church realm, talking about how we interact with one another, how we care for one another, how we live the Christian life, to all of a sudden moving into the state and says, obey the governing authorities. Why does he do that? Why does Paul make that transition? Was there a specific situation that he was dealing with with Rome? Well, there certainly may have been. I mean, Rome was exceptionally cruel and corrupt toward Christians. They probably didn't want to pay taxes. You can bet money that when your tax dollars are being given to soldiers, to pay soldiers to persecute you, you probably don't want to pay those tax dollars, right? And subject yourself to that government. But it's more than that. Remember that at the end of Romans 12, he says this. If you look at verse 17, repay no one, at the end of verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. As an individual, you never have the right. You never have the right as an individual to seek revenge to seek vindication. He says this, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he goes on and talks about government. Why? Because what he's laying down about government is, if you look at verse 4 of chapter 13, government is, for he is God's servant for your good. What does he say? But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. In other words, Paul tells us you are not allowed to take part in revenge. You are to pray for your enemy. You're to bless them. When you speak of them, you're to speak well of them. You're to do good for them, and you're never to take revenge. Leave it to God. Which, uh, Paul, is that really, really, that's all you have to say about our lives? That is some pretty tough medicine to swallow, Paul. These people just wronged me, and injustice was just committed. And you're telling me I'm just supposed to be nice and pray, and, and I'm just supposed to be doing kind things, and, and that's it? Is that really 
all that you have to say about life. That's how it's handled. That's how this world is handled. Paul says, no, there's something else I need you to let you know about. There is earthly recourse for evil. The government. The government exists to right wrongs. You don't have to take out wrath or vindication. That's what the government exists to do. And he launches into what the government's about. And he gives us three, so you know, three lessons about government. I only gave you three. There's really more in here. But three lessons about government that we need to understand in order to live godly lives in Christ. Okay, So that's it. I'm going to just sum it up to those three. Here, here they are. First, first thing we know, go- government is instituted by God. Did you hear that? Government is instituted by God. Verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For, here's the explanation, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Hear that? Who instituted the American government? God did. Who instituted the IRS? Ultimately, God did. No authority except from God. None. Not one. That's a universal negative. No authority except from God. Not most authorities are from God. All of them are from him. There is no authority that exists that does not exist because of him. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21, you hear this statement, which Daniel, if you're looking it up, comes right after Ezekiel. But you'll hear this statement from Daniel when he's praying, and he says this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He, verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Hear that? Who changes times and seasons? Who removes kings and sets up kings? God does. God does. I remember when I first, when I first ran for the school board in 2004, I was running for the school board as a youth pastor who wanted to be able to get into the schools. Um, because I was on the board, they'd have to let me in, right? And hang out with my students. And so I ran, and it turned into this huge ordeal, and the media actually wanted a statement from me on the night of the election, the election night, you know, on election night, they have these parties, right? And all the campaigns, and you have a party, and, and you get together, and you watch the election results come in, and that the party ends up being a fun party or a really depressing sort of party, right? <laughs> One of the two, and you never really know going in. So we were, um, well, unless you have money to do polling and all that stuff, which I wasn't into all that. So we, we went to the, this pizza place, and we were standing there, and the media guy shows up before any results came out. No, no results had come out. We had no polls. I had no idea what happened. I assumed I was going to lose for sure. I was outspent by like $300,000 or something. So I figured, I'm done, right? And I went, I went into the party, and right before the party, the, the news guy, um, I remember his name even was David Hun. He was actually a pretty good um, guy doing coverage on me. And he, he came up to me, and he said, hey, do you have a quote? What, what's going to be your quote? I want to come to your party and interview you when the results come in. I said, David, I want to give you my quote right now. What do you, you want to give me your quote right now? You don't even know if you won or lost. I said, it doesn't matter if I win or lose. I'm going to give you the same quote. So I'm going to give it to you before any results so you know that I mean this, win or lose. It's like, okay, what is it? I said, all praise, honor, and glory goes to Jesus Christ for he sets up kings and he deposes them. 
That's my quote. He said, you want to say that win or lose? Win or lose. Win or lose. And he, he was blown away. And people actually wrote after I won in the paper, what a prideful quote. And I'm like, I gave it before. I didn't know I was winning. You know? <laughs> and, they, and they were like, you know, and they were ripping me and saying, well, would he say that about Hitler? Yes, he would. He would say that about Hitler. Yes, I would. God appointed Hitler. Is God responsible for Hitler's evil? No. But would Hitler have been an authority if God had not appointed him? No. The Bible universally states there is no authority that is not appointed by God. None. God sets up leaders and God deposes them. The greatest example is Daniel's prayer in Daniel 2. Why? Look at the context. Does God set up or appoint evil kings? Yes. Daniel's praying in the context in which his people are being oppressed by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is leading Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar has come in, swept through, wiped out Israel, wiped them out, taken Daniel and his friends into slavery, into Babylon, trained them to be some kind of leaders or magi at the time, trained them in that way, but took them for that purpose. He was oppressing Daniel's people. And Daniel says in the midst of his people being oppressed by Nebuchadnezzar, what does he say? God sets up leaders and God deposes them. He doesn't just say that when he's a king he likes. When he has a government he hopes for. When the president he wanted to get elected won. He says that in every case universally, God sets up leaders and God deposes them. This is said in Jeremiah chapter 27. Jeremiah talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar who was an evil king. Evil. Who oppressed people. Jeremiah chapter 27. God's talking about Nebuchadnezzar coming. He says this in verses 4 through 6. Give them this charge. This is God speaking. Give this charge to their masters. It's coming from Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. This is God speaking to Israel. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals and that are on the earth, and I give it, I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his sons and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. In other words, God appointed Nebuchadnezzar. And he did it in order to punish, to discipline Israel. God did that. God appoints all authorities. Look at Revelation chapter 13. This is like the counterpart to the Romans 13 chapter. Revelation chapter 13. If you look there, this is what happens when Satan essentially rules the state. Revelation 13. Look with me specifically at verse 5. This is an easy book to find because it's the last book in the New Testament of the whole Bible, right? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. The, the beast is not a good creature, by the way. When you're uttering 
haughty and blasphemous words, that's bad, right? Okay? And it, it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It was allowed to exercise, that's three and a half years. It was allowed to exercise authority. It's speaking haughty and blasphemous words. It's allowed to exercise authority for three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, who, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Do you hear that? It's allowed to make war on Christians and conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone is here, ears to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Hear that? Essentially, this is a picture of Satan taking over the state. The most demonic government that can be had. The beast is being given its authority here, specifically by Satan himself. Where does Satan give his, get his authority? Read the book of Job. Satan has to come to God and ask God for permission to bring anything against Job's life. Listen to what Jesus tells Peter. Jesus tells Peter, how would you like to hear this message, by the way, as you're walking along in life with Jesus, and he says, Peter, I want you to know that Satan has come before God and is asking for permission to sift you like wheat, and we've given it to him. Right? It's an encouraging message to hear, isn't it? But Satan has to ask God's permission. God gives the authority ultimately. God does. God is not responsible for the evil acts of evil kings. That is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying he's responsible for the evil acts of evil kings. But he has glorious and good purposes for allowing them to exist, even though we don't always know what they are. He has good and glorious purposes for allowing them to exist, to be appointed, though we don't always know what those purposes are. Two, second, government's role, not only is government instituted by God, government's role is to restrain evil and promote the common good. To restrain evil and promote the common good. Look at verse 2 of chapter 13 of Romans. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Mind you, Paul is writing this to a people who are in the Roman Empire. An empire, and a people, by the way, just before Nero becomes the Caesar. Nero actually took the Christians, wrapped them in candle wax, and burned them in his garden as candles. That's what Nero did with them. That's the people whom Paul is writing this to. And look what he's saying. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Hear that? Multiple times, government is called God's servant. In fact, if you remember 
When I read from Jeremiah, God said of Nebuchadnezzar, he's my servant. He's my minister. Here when we use the word servant or minister, it's the same word from which we get deacon. We get the idea of deacons from that. People who serve other people. Talking about the service predominantly of their physical needs. He's the servant. Government is God's servant. God established that servant of government for our good. That does not mean that Paul is in la-la land and thinks that government always serves our good. He recognizes that government becomes corrupt, obviously. But what he's talking about is not really this sort of um, perfect situation that's actually occurring. What he's talking about is God's purpose for government. Government often goes away from its purpose, but God is talk- Paul's talking specifically about God's purpose. You understand that? Why he set it up. Government exists for purposes that are good. Building roads and bridges and utilities. Securing our borders. Well, it's supposed to anyway. Protecting us from foreign invaders. Providing police and firefighters and other public safety employees to deal with local crime. To deal with emergency response. In our country, government educates our children. Government promotes marriage and the propagation of children for the future of the state. Government regulates against the abuse of one people by another people. Those are all, I think, probably things government, for the most part, should be doing. Good things for which we should be thankful. You know, some of you in here are public school teachers. Right? You work for the government as public school teachers. Some of you in here are firefighters. You might be police officers in here. You might work for some other form of the government. might be in the military. God has appointed you to your job. God has. You're his servant. And I thank my God for you. And I pray that you serve God faithfully in the role he has appointed you to. I, as a minister of the gospel, am no more appointed to the church than you are appointed to the government. Hear that? We all know, however, that government can have the tendency to do things that are not for our good, don't we? We know that there are unjust governments, that governments can directly disobey God, that governments can be immoral. And we have to remember that that governments often don't recognize that they are God's servants. Governments often don't recognize that they are appointed and instituted by God and therefore are supposed to obey God. Instead, they do things God specifically commands the governors of his creation not to do. And and people, when I say that, people are going to say to me, are you saying there's no separation of church and state? Are you saying that there shouldn't be a separation? That the government's supposed to obey God, so you're saying there's no separation of church and state? I am saying the government is supposed to obey God. That's what I'm saying. The problem with the whole discussion about separation of church and state is that we've redefined it. That's the problem with the discussion. We've redefined it. It used to refer to the respective roles and functions, and now it refers to the rejection of God from the public square. There are different topics. So when you ask me, do I think there's a separation of church and state, I'm going to tell you, biblically, there is a separation of church and state. Regardless of whether it actually exists in the Constitution, which it does not, 
There is biblically a separation of constitution of church and state. What is the biblical separation? The church has these authorities, roles, responsibilities. The church exists to teach the Bible, preach the gospel, care for its people, seek the lost for Christ. That's what the church exists to do. That's its role, job. The state exists to restrain evil, to bear the sword, to enforce justice. That's what the state exists to do. That's its authority. That's its area of responsibility. The church does not carry the sword. The state does. So there is a separation in their roles and responsibilities, biblically. They're supposed to be. That doesn't mean, however, that doesn't mean, however, that either of these servants, the church or the state, that either of these servants of God aren't appointed by God to do what God wants. They both are. The state just should never be in the business of the gospel, and the church should never be in the business of bearing the sword. That doesn't mean, however, they're not both God's servants appointed to do what God wants in God's creation. Here's what I'm driving about. The church, driving at, church has certain God-ordained roles and responsibility, and the state has certain God-ordained roles and responsibility. They have their own spheres of authority. Neither should govern the other or cross into the other sphere of authority. Shouldn't. However, however, please don't misunderstand me, the state is still appointed and governed ultimately by God, and it should not reject its role. should not reject him and his rule, nor should it reject its role to restrain evil, to bear the sword. So what about capital punishment? It bears the sword, Paul says. It bears the sword. What about capital punishment? Why else would it bear the sword? People ask me this question all the time. They say, you know, I mean, if you Christians believe in pro-life, in saving babies... Why, why do you believe in capital punishment? Aren't you saying over here that it's, it's not okay to take life and over here it is okay to take life? Well, let's, first of all, let's, let's do this first. It's never okay for any individual to take the life of any other individual. It's only okay for the state to do that in Scripture. You hear that? It's only okay for the state to do that in Scripture. Now, I'm not talking about self-defense. Self-defense is a different situation. But it's only okay for the state to proactively take life. And in which, in which way does the state do that? In defending itself from foreign invaders, the state has the right to do that. And in capital punishment. Genesis chapter 9, God reinstitutes the covenant with Noah. God reinstitutes the covenant with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. What covenant? The creation covenant. He comes to Noah and he says to Noah, Look, now that you're off the boat, now that you're back on the land, I, w- I want you to know something. I'm setting up the covenant with you again that I made with Adam to a large degree. And here's the covenant. I'm never going to, never going to flood the earth again. I'm going to wipe out all men. I'm going to put a rainbow in the cloud just to remind you of my promise that I'm never going to do that again. However, there are some things I want you to know about your behavior. You are never to murder another man. And if one man murders another, one man sheds the blood of another man by man his blood shall be shed. In other words, he institutes capital punishment. God does for the whole world. Not just for Israel, not just for the Jews, not just for the Old Testament. For the whole world, he institutes capital punishment. When Moses comes along in the law and God gives the law through Moses, Moses actually gives stipulations for capital punishment. Moses comes in and says, um, there are things you need to know. There's 
what we end up with our categories of first degree, second degree, manslaughter, etc. Where he starts in putting in, well, a man could accidentally kill a man. He doesn't deserve to get capital punishment for accidentally killing a man. A man could purposefully, in a premeditated way, kill a man. That man should suffer capital punishment. And there's actually clarifications that are made under Moses' law for that, which we get our laws from in our state, incidentally, with regard to first degree, second degree, and, and manslaughter. We get our, our laws from that. And then you come into Romans 13 in the New Testament, and Paul comes and reaffirms the fact the state doesn't bear the sword in vain. Bears the sword for the purpose of capital punishment. People say, well, doesn't that sound like we're devaluing life? No. Just the opposite. God is saying, I value life so much. Why? Because you're in the image of God that if one man kills another, the state shall institute capital punishment on that man to demonstrate to everyone how seriously we take the value of life. Jesus even understood this. What happens when Pontius Pilate comes to Jesus and says, I have the authority to take your life. What does Jesus say in John 19? He says, nuh-uh. Capital punishment's over, dude. It's not what he says. I have the authority to take your life. And what does Jesus say? That authority's been given to you by my Father. What about just war? I keep getting asked this. You know, in Christian circles, we have this, this discussion we talk about with, should we be pacifists, avoid war, or should we participate in war, in the military, in some kind of just war? And there's this argument. I'm not going to answer the whole argument today, but when Paul says they bear the sword, does that carry over to war? I think it does. The state has a right to protect itself from foreign invaders. What about Christians, though? Should Christians participate in that? That's a different question than should the government do it. Should Christians then participate in the military? I'll tell you, I don't think this is an easy answer. I think if it's a just war, I think Christians have the right to participate in the military. The problem is the Supreme Court in the 1970s during the Vietnam War threw a major kink in this issue for us. You know what they did? They came in and said, unless you are a conscientious objector to all wars, you can't consciously object to any hear that? So you either fight in every war the government participates in, or you fight in none. But you can't conscientiously object to one or another. That's a huge ethical problem for Christians. I don't know how to sort that out. Sort it out for yourselves. But we're supposed to fight in wars that are just, and that's it. No others. Third, the Christian response to government is to submit to it and show honor. In other words, not only is government instituted by God, not only um, is government supposed to be obeyed because its role is to restrain evil and promote the common good, but government, government is supposed to be responded to by Christians in a particular way. And our response is submission and showing honor. Hear that? Submission and showing honor. Look at verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers. Again, there's that word. They're servants, deacons of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Peter repeats a very similar command in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
And what Paul does here, essentially, with our feeling about the authority of the government is he says this, listen, government's instituted by me. It doesn't always do the right thing, but the bottom line is you Christians are to submit to it. I realize government was set up for these ideals. It doesn't always reach them, but Christians, we are to submit to it because it's appointed by God. And we are to pay our taxes, and we are not only to pay our taxes, we are to honor the people in authority. Honor them. Okay? Let me ask you a question. In what way do you show honor to the governing authorities? You showing honor to them? Not just obeying the laws and paying your taxes. Hopefully you're doing both of those things. But are you honoring them? How? When you get together and speak about them, do you speak in a way about those who are in leadership in a way that's dishonoring or honoring to them? I'm not asking do you challenge their decisions. That is fine. When you speak about them as human beings, do you honor them? Do you honor the office they're in? Or do you dishonor it? How do you respond to them? That's a very different question than do you agree with them? You, You hear me on that? You can disagree with them. You can even state your disagreement. That's what this country is about here in America. You can vote against them. You can organize whole movements of people who vote against them. But you still have to honor them and the office they're in. Scripture calls us to. And when Paul says to to obey them, when Peter says to obey them, he is punching the anti-authority idol square in the mouth. We have an idol in our culture. We hate authority. No one tells us anything unless we give them permission to or we like it. And it goes all the way back to the garden, this authority problem we have in which we reject any kind of authority over us. We say, oh, it's just our culture. No, it's not just our culture. This problem existed in the garden. We hate authority. And Jesus and Paul and Peter punch that idol square in the mouth and say, obey your government, even the corrupt one you live in. Even the corrupt one you live in. Pay your taxes. Honor them. Look at Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. I'm going to deal with this because this is Jesus directly speaking on this topic and and being very, very clear. Verse 14. Well, actually, we'll start in um, 13. That's easier. Verse 13 of Mark chapter 12. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Who are they who sent to him? They here are religious leaders of the day. Political leaders of the day. Who's the him? Jesus. They sent him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Why is this astounding? Here's why. The Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. Not in the Sanhedrin, but among the people. They don't actually rule the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees do. They're actually ruling the Sanhedrin. But the Pharisees are the, pa- the, the pastors, in a sense, of the people. They're the conservatives. They're the Bible-believing, socially conservative. Resist the Roman oppressor. Get rid of the despot that has overtaken our state. Fight him off. Return to the government that we should have kind of guys. That's the Pharisees. The Herodians are the party of Herod. They are the compromisers. They are the You know, let us do whatever it takes to keep Rome happy kind of guys. These two groups hate each other. 
the Pharisees hated the Herodians. The Herodians hated the Pharisees. But you know what they could all get together and agree on? Jesus is a problem. Let's kill him. So they get together and they actually have this talk, this desire to trap him in his talk. And here's what's said. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. By the way, um, you know, sometimes you realize that that the kisses of an enemy are not nearly as faithful as the wounds of a friend when you read a passage like this. Because here are these guys unnecessarily flattering Jesus just before they trap him to try to kill him, right? And here's what they say to him. But truly, you teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Why is this a massive trap? You want to know this is a massive trap? It's, it's, here's what's happening. Essentially, what they're coming to him and saying is, if he says, the Herodians No, if he says, don't pay taxes, don't pay taxes, if Jesus says, don't pay them, what's going to happen is the Herodians can have him killed because he's some sort of zealot who's leading rebellion against Rome and he's subject to the death penalty. On the other side, if he says, do pay taxes, then the Pharisees know he's going to become wildly unpopular. So they know. And the specific tax they're talking about is particularly important because it's pointed out for Jesus with the denarius. And you pay this sort of denarius tax. What is that tax for? You want to know what this tax was for? This tax that they're talking about, should we pay it or not, is the tax wherein every year, every man gives a denarius for what? To pay for the Roman oppressing soldiers to be in the country. In other words, this is the worst kind of tax. This is where you are taking out of your personal wealth every year for you to pay for oppressors to rule in your country. This does not make you popular when you tell people, pay this tax. Right? So they're asked, should I pay it? Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. You see, Caesar had his picture put on all these. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Why? Because Jesus, in one fail swoop, both honored the king and had them pay taxes and reminded everyone who the king belongs to. Didn't he? He said, pay your taxes. See that? It's got Caesar's image on it. Caesar thinks he's the son of God. Caesar thinks he's divine. Pay your taxes to him. Give it back. That's his? Give it to him. But render to God the things that are God's. Notice, he's not God. And God owns everything. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus tells you to pay your taxes. Show honor those in authority. Recognize it's all from God. 1 Timothy 2 says that we're supposed to pray for our government. So pray for those in authority. Further, in our system of government, I'm going to make a specific application here. We didn't live in a Roman oppressive empire like they did. In our system of government, we don't live there. Our system of government, God has instituted government of the people, by the people, and for the people. In other words, the final earthly authority in our government is the people. And the way we demonstrate that as authority is through voting. 
If we hope to be good Christian citizens of our state, then we must be informed. We must speak out on issues. We must vote. And probably some of you should be running for things. You guys hear that? We have to actively engage our responsibility as citizens of this country. Because at the end of the day, we're the ones who vote. You guys hear that? We're the ones who place those who are in authority in authority. God has, in a sense, not just set up a king for us. God has set up a system of government we live in. He's appointed a system of government here where he gives to us the right to appoint the people who rule us. He's given us that. So guess who's ultimately responsible for corrupt government? We are. We can point at the men in office, but at the end of the day, we're the ones who put them there. So we're the people who are ultimately responsible in this country for corrupt government. Do you hear that? If you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, you have to live in this state as a citizen who exercises the right you've been given by God to vote. God instituted our government. For good or for ill, he instituted it. And in instituting it, he gave us, as the people, the right to vote, to appoint those who would lead us. And when we do not speak out, when we do not vote, when we are not informed, when we do not run for offices that are available that need good, godly Christian people in them, it is on us when our government becomes corrupt. On us. It's our responsibility. And then we have the government we have. And it's become a respectable sin, right? It's become a respectable sin now once we lose in an election to then dishonor those in authority, to disrespect those in authority, to not pray for them. That's become essentially this sort of respectable sin to even question whether we should pay our taxes. So it's become sort of this thing where people in the c- culture go, well, you know, it's okay if you do that. Really, Christians? No, it's not. That's a sin. God, doesn't com- God commands us to do the opposite. Something we ought to be repenting of. Not participating in. <clears throat> Let me say this, though, because I think I want to finish and land the plane here. I don't have time to talk about civil disobedience. But, but let me say this. We sin in this way all the time, don't we? You guys sin this way or just me? It's not just me, right? I'm not the only one who dishonors the people in authority in, in this room, am I? No, I don't think so. Dishonors their office. I'm not the only one who doesn't participate like I should to make sure we don't have corrupt politicians, right? I don't, I don't think so. But here's what I do know. While we've all sinned this way, Jesus didn't. Hear that? Jesus didn't. Jesus paid his taxes. Jesus honored the king. Jesus, even at his own trial in which he is unjustly condemned, unjustly condemned by the state, unjustly being put to death by the state, tells the governor of the state, you do have the authority to do this, and it was given to you by my father. Hear that? And Jesus' obedience is credited to our account if we believe in him. If we trust in Christ, he paid the penalty for our failure to be good citizens. 
but he also was a good citizen of his state on our behalf, and that's credited to us. You hear me? That's why we trust in him, because he, he is the one who keeps all of God's law, lives perfectly before God on, in our place. That's why we look to him for our hope and salvation. Without him, we're done. But with him, we have all, all the treasures of God in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we ask for your help as a people as we try to understand all that your word says about government, all the things we weren't even able to get into this morning. Father, we pray that we would be a people who um, are able to give honor to those whom honors do, which is those who you've placed in authority. Father, we would be people who pay our taxes, who obey our government, who submit to their authority. Father, at the same time, we would understand our responsibility as those whom you've given the right to vote, to choose those in authority. We pray we'd understand that and we would exercise it faithfully, that we would, that we would be able to be involved as much as we can in this state as righteous, godly citizens who help bring about righteous, God-honoring government. Father, inasmuch as in your sovereign will we don't have that kind of government, we pray that we will be able to live godly in Christ Jesus in this world, submitting to ungodly government, knowing when to disobey and when to obey Father, always knowing that they're appointed by you, they ought to be honored. Taxes have to be paid. Father, that we would honor you as we do it, and that every time we fail to honor our leaders the way we're supposed to, every time that we fail to pay all the taxes we're due or find some way around it, every time we fail to submit to authority in our state, every time we fail to participate in, in voting and being informed, Father, that we would trust in Jesus as our hope. We would know he is our righteousness. We would know he was the perfect citizen of his state, even suffering injustice perfectly in our place so that we might be forgiven our sins. It might be credited to us as, un, as righteousness. We might live with you forever. Thank you for this work that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.